Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with a man and his son in their journey together with autism. We're going to learn about the struggles, the stress emotionally, financially, and personally as a family navigates societal perceptions, practices, and prejudices. Eric Raschke and his family made sacrifices and commitments to persevere and ensure that their son gets the love and the support, the quality education, and community integration he needs to thrive in society. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is The Thing About Our Journey with Autism. My guest, Eric Raschke, is a novelist and award-winning writer, having been published in numerous magazines and reviews. He also worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in Armenia. He's a certified New York public school teacher working with lower-income students in the upper Manhattan Bronx area, and he currently teaches writing at the University of Amsterdam. His second novel, To the Mountain, has a very special personal connection, and as a special guest, his son will be joining the conversation to talk about his journey. I'd like to welcome Eric and his son to the show. Hi. Thanks. You guys Thanks have an that. amazing journey. Yeah, we do. Yeah. It still gets getting better, too. Uh, I think it is. Let's start start at the beginning. Uh, Eric, both of you, where did you guys grow up? Where did you grow up? Amsterdam. Amsterdam. That's unique. What? What's your first language? Dutch. Do you speak Dutch? Yeah. Yeah, it's, his, his original education, I mean, what they were teaching him at the school was all Dutch. So you can speak Dutch. He makes he laughs at me when I speak Dutch. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when did you learn English when you moved here? Uh well, it's for a long time that people know that sometimes. You spoke English your whole life, right? Yeah, I spoke English my whole life. Yeah. That nobody around him spoke English except his father and Elmo. So <laughs> <laughs> his father and Elmo. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, that's important. On, yeah, and then later on, then he started to see that there was other people who spoke English and then television and stuff like that. But in the Netherlands, they, they have something pretty special. They <clears throat> they don't translate. Like if you go to France and Germany, they dub everything over. But in the Netherlands, um, all the TV is in English. So that's why most Dutch people speak very good English. And so Kess, they didn't even know when he first came here to go to school, they didn't even know he spoke Dutch. His, he's so good at speaking English, but his Dutch, he's fluent in Dutch. He's better. He's completely fluent in Dutch. I mean, he grew up with it. So, yeah. We speak excellent English. I grew up with an Italian brother in law and all of his friends from Italy. And I can validate that you speak very good English. Yeah. So, Eric, you where did you grow up, Eric? Uh, I grew up in Denver, and um, I uh, lived there until I was 18. And, uh, and then I went away to school, and then I was in the Peace Corps, and then I lived in New York for a long time. And then uh, I met Kiss's mom in New York, and then we, when she was pregnant with Kess, we moved to the Netherlands and we we split up when he was three I think three or four yeah but we've been co-parenting the whole time so so because his 
been with me the whole time. And, uh, and then I've been there, yeah, until this year when we both came back so, so that he could go to school. So we should talk a little bit about talk a little bit about that journey. So you're a writer, correct, Eric? Right. You got a master of arts degree in writing from New York, uh, New York yeah. University. Uh, City College. City College in New York. What made you go to New York? That's a really good question because I mean, it, you're you're in Arizona, right? I am, but yeah. I'm from Colorado. Yeah, right. We talked about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, there's a sort of I don't know, well, how do you say a sort of looking down on East Coast writers and stuff like that. And I was always growing up with uh, writers that were pretty, I, I was always inspired by writers that were from the West Coast and, you know, Outer Abbey and stuff like that. And, you know, the, the I mean, I did my, my undergraduate thesis on Edward Abbey and nobody even knew who he was. And, and uh, I, I, I really liked that. But then I applied to schools to, for master's programs and um, I didn't, I didn't, to be honest, I, I didn't get into most of them, the ones I really wanted. And I got into City College, and um, they gave me a full scholarship. And uh, so I didn't amazing. have to pay anything. And uh, I mean, you don't have to pay anything anyways, really, at City College. But um, so I was like, I did not want to go to New York, to be honest. I was like, I don't, I don't really don't want to go to New York and, and become one of those writers. But then I did, and I love New York. And uh, I mean, I love Colorado. It's my home. It's like my heart is Colorado, but I love New York too. I miss Colorado. I really do. Your dad and I have something uh, kind of in common when we were talking earlier previous to this call. Way back when, I think on his first job, your dad used to drive by my house in Woodland Park. Oh, yeah. At least once a week. Huh? We didn't know that until we, we opened a conversation. Yeah. Oh, cool. Guess what I did. Yeah. Guess what I did. What? I was a trash man. Oh, a trash man. <laughs> it's my first summer job. Hmm. Yeah, so we we both grew up in Colorado. He went to New York and Amsterdam. I moved to Arizona, and it took all of that to meet here on this podcast. <laughs> and we were also talking, too, because I have to say that was – literally one of the best jobs I ever had. It was so much fun. I was, I think I was a little bit older than you. I was 15 yeah. and uh, I got it at 14 and 15 and I just lifting trash all day long and driving through the mountains on the back of a trash truck. <laughs> and I got paid like $20 an hour. It was the most, it was like three times more money than I had ever been paid in my life. <laughs> and so, and I made so much money that summer. I came back and all my friends had worked at like Dairy Queen and they were like barely made enough money to sort of carry them through the year. And I made all this money. It was great. And it was big too. I put on a lot of weight and got muscles and I still have a scar right here somewhere from it where I, a, a bottle was in a trash bag and I cut my arm. And uh, yeah, such a great job. And Woodland Park, where you're from, it's just, it's so beautiful there. It's just, I love it. Yeah, I miss Woodland Park. Woodland, there is a vast, vast difference between Woodland Park and Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. It, it is like night and day. I, I miss the green. I miss the mountains. I miss looking at the backside of Pikes Peak, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> That's uh, reminiscing, but I, th but I thought that was pretty cool. We did all of that and still managed to meet up here, which is pretty slick. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too, this age, like my son at this age, he's, we've being here and he just, him and I, um, I force, I've been forcing him. He does martial arts now twice a week. And, uh, he, he does on the treadmill, he goes on the treadmill and we hike because we're in the forest. And he went from when we were in Amsterdam from being, you know, sort of soft and to being really big. Now he's grown really fast and, uh, He's almost as tall as me and he's putting on muscles. And so it's, it's, it's incredible at this age. And he also eats 10 meals a day. (laughs) That could be a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. So you're, you're learning martial arts. Yeah. What are you learning? The karate? Yeah. Yeah. I used to do Aikido. Aikido. And Kung Fu. Mm. And now I practice Tai Chi and Qigong. It's like a medical form. Hmm? Tai Chi would be good for you, too. Tai Chi would be really good for you. Very slow sort of movements. Yeah. It's really like a meditation focus. Yeah. (laughs) Your dad's a writer. What do you want to be? A DJ. A DJ. You love music? Yeah. What kind of music do you like? Hip-hop. Hip-hop. Is that all? Do you like other kinds or just hip hop? Just hip hop. How does it make you feel? Well, you feel good. Uh, so I don't. Yeah. Tell us all the kind of music you've been listening to. Um. Uh. <laughs> uh. When you listen, when you listen to music, how does it make you feel? Happy. Music is the the universal language. It touches everybody's soul from inside and it resonates through their body and people can remember a song from 20 years ago or 30 years ago more than they can remember what somebody said to them. You'll be going into a noble profession if you're a DJ. You'll be sharing that with everybody. Yeah. He's really That's good at pretty cool. it. Was, ever since he was a, a baby, he responded really well to music and sounds. You know, I think... I think it's a lot of it has to do too, and, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think as you're seeing, it's speaking and communication is, I mean, that's the very definition of autism, but he casts off, he struggles with putting words together. He, there's a lot going on in his head. All those words are there, but going from his head to his mouth, it gets tangled up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, this conversation that you're getting right now is just, it's its miles more than he was when he was a kid. And uh, I think music, though, is, and tell me if I'm wrong here, just say yes or no, Papa. But music is sort of, it doesn't require that language. I mean, it's the a language of its own. Yeah, but it doesn't require speaking and putting words together. Am I, am I right? Or? Yeah, I guess you're also right. But you also like to write music now, too, right? Yeah. He just, this year, at the school that he's going to, I, I use this sort of thing when you were in the Netherlands. I have a, a folder about, you know, six, seven inches thick of of therapists and people saying, like, he's never going to read. He's just, it's he's you should just stop considering him, you know, being able to read. And And he struggled for years and years. And then two years ago, um... Two years ago, we brought him here to the school, 
and uh, he was just doing a summer camp. And they're like, is there anything you want us to try out with him? I'm like, I, can you get him to read? And within six days, they had him reading. Yeah, that's amazing. What he's doing now, he's they've they don't instead of saying because this is sort of in, in the Netherlands, they're like, oh, he can't read the word tomato, and so we're going to just keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. So they never get anywhere. And so here, the difference of the school is something that's really interesting is, and I I've, I just learned this, you know, maybe a few months ago, is they said, look, it doesn't matter if he can't read. There's a million things that can help him understand what's going on. The most important thing is that he understands what's going on in the classroom. And then we can, he can start learning at his level and then we'll teach him tomato. How does read tomato later on? That's not important. So it's a sort of the thing I think I was sort of equated to when when you're talking to somebody who doesn't speak English per se, like they're just learning English, you begin to judge them, their intellect on the way they speak English. But of course, you know, they're you know, they're they might be completely fluent in Hindi and they might have this huge vocabulary in Hindi, but when they're speaking in English, and I think that that happens sometimes with with Kess too, but He's, I mean, he came here and they started, they, they're, he took a test within like the first month and he's like, what's a test? I don't know what a test is. And I'm like, okay, so here's a test. And now he's, he's great. He's doing amazing. So they put these high expectations up there for him and they've demanded that he reach these high expectations and he's, it took a few months, but he's doing really, really good now. And, um, and, and, and before, you know, they, they didn't have any expectations for him. So that, I think that's that's sort of the one of these really big differences. Yeah, that, that's outstanding, actually. Can can uh, you guys help us understand what autism is? What do you think it is? It's um, um, it's sort of that you're out. Uh, I I don't know what it is. Yes, you do. You listen to the, what, like for example, Tim, right? Yeah. Or your friend, or your friend, your friends. Yeah. Right. That are autistic. Yeah. What? Are, well, how are you different from other people? Because I have autism. Right. But what does that mean? I don't know what that means. <laughs> how does it make you feel? Happy. Makes you feel happy. <laughs> You're not being serious. Uh, I'm trying to make sure that our listeners kind of get a better understanding of your journey and what you've gone through and what your family has gone through with this journey, because we all have a unique journey. Mine was working my way out of a wheelchair. Mine was because I was told by five doctors I would never walk again. And I made a point of doing that. So that was, those were my challenges. And my family joined me in those challenges. But those are unique to me. So with autism, I know that that's unique to each person. And I know that there's some common things that are with having autism or being autistic. Uh, I'm just trying to trying to help our listeners to understand maybe a little more of, of what you experience and what you go through with autism. Oh, um, well. <laughs> Come on. It's a, very, it's a very difficult question, but I think you can do it. That's okay. Um, autism is, uh, um, it's hard to say. But... How are you different from, from your brothers? Well, because I have autism. But how are you different, though? I have brown hair. You your physical features, though. Yeah. Do you think you're different than your brothers? Yes. Yeah. Is it more difficult for somebody with autism to uh, learn? Yes. Is it more of a 
hardship with learning reading or or listening or understanding? Reading. With reading? Yeah. So somebody with autism can understand pretty well, Yeah. but sometimes have difficulty reading, like maybe somebody with dyslexia has problems with reading. Yeah. Kind of similar to that? Yeah. Is it hard to do math? Sometimes. Sometimes? Yeah. We have a family member that's a little autistic. He's got autism. And um, on a lower scale, and but he could do numbers and do math like a genius. It's amazing. Okay. Yeah, this is this is something that that is often a struggle um, because there's the higher functioning people who are higher functioning autistic. Well, you know, we have this sort of idea of Rain Man, you know, that the savant, but that's like one percent. You know, it's a very small percentage. And then you also have people who are autistic who can just talk normally and they can read normally and they can go to school normally. And, and it, it, you know, and they're like, well, I'm autistic. And I'm like, well, no, you're not. You know, like, I mean, they are, but you know, it's like, I, it, you know, there, there's, there's sort of that saying that you hear people saying that if you can read this, then you're not autistic, you know? And, and so it's, there is, there is, lines are being drawn in the sand sometimes, but I would say we've probably been to about five or six different schools, maybe even more, maybe even close to about 10 different schools. And nobody was able to find a way to uh, educate them. And then we come here, you know, then they, I said in six days, I'm like, I got, we have to, we have to do whatever we can to bring him here. And uh, one of the things that, you know, they do is they, they give him lots of confidence. So when he came here, he was very insecure about stuff and about himself and his thinking and who he was. And they just keep reassuring him, reassuring him, reassuring him. They build up his confidence and build up his confidence till now that he's to, to a point where, where he's like a teenager. He's talking back to me and he's, you know, he's, he's doing stuff. And, and, and as a parent, it's, 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 it's a really wonderful thing to see. And now he's also going to be in a school play. He's going to, they have a prom. And, um, but I think what you're experiencing right now um, is the, the conversation is as a parent, I'm speaking as a parent, but I'm just sort of jumping in because I think these are difficult questions. And I think he is, coming to terms with things. And I think that's also why it's, I like to bring him on these kinds of things because I want him to sort of take the narrative over. But once again, the definition of autism is, you know, being by yourself and not being able to sort of, it's a, it's a disorder of communication. So I, I have a feeling that Kes probably has a million answers in his head, but what you're hearing is yes, no, you know, the answers he thinks you want to hear and stuff like that. And um, so like, the point I'm trying to say is that, that the school builds him up and makes him very confident. And, and within less than a year, well, a year, he's just become a completely different, a normal, like a, a, a functioning human being who, who has this communication disorder, but he's learning to overcome it. And sort of like that, your last guest, the, the guy who was stuttering, he said something really interesting, the stuttering activist. He said that, you know, there's no, there's no real nobody knows where stuttering comes from, but a lot of it has to do with, I mean, he, I, he said this at one point, it has to do with confidence, you know, confidence that you can do it, you can carry through it. And I think that's something that is one of the most important things that he is learning right now is just to have confidence, you know? I, I agree with that 
And you've been doing a really good job. At least on my podcast, you've done an excellent job. Yeah. So do you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, Frey brothers. How many? Um, one is free. Four. Four. You have four brothers? No. He has two brothers. <laughs> one is four years old, and the other is... One is four years old. The other is... Uh... Are you a big brother or a little brother? Big brother. Big brother. Do you have any sisters? Um, no. I have a sister. So when you guys were in Amsterdam, I know that you said you had the school system here made a vast improvement um, in his life. And um, the fact that you guys had kind of split up your family from Amsterdam to, to accomplish that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we wanted to see if it was going to work here first. Right. So um, we didn't want to make everybody move over here and then not have it work. And um, now we're trying to figure out a way to get everybody over here now. But, you know, my wife has a good job and, uh, you know, his brothers are in school. And and um, so a lot of people, I mean, and Cass is he is very aware of this, too, and that we've all had to sort of make a sacrifice for him. But I think the end goal is, and we've talked about this many times before, is that if we stayed in Amsterdam, his his future was very limited, you know? Um, the People always say that the, you know, that Europeans and the Dutch, they have this really good safety net, and they do. Like, if you you don't have, you won't want walk out of a hospital with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. But on the other hand, when you want something specialized, something very small, like uh, if you're autistic, there's, there's really very few outlets, most of them being um, subsidized home help or, um, or a group home. And, uh, and this option, I feel like, was the one option that maybe was one of the few options where he can live independently or semi-independently and then have a career that he enjoys. So, for example, there's, there's, a, there's a boy who's his mentor at the school who's much older. He stays in the school till he's 21, and he's a DJ, and he DJs at weddings. And, and, and so, you know, he makes a living. So... Instead of, yeah, there's two. Okay, there's two boys. Very cool. And, and uh, the emphasis is really like on giving a quality of life to these people who are, who, who, whose narrow things. So, for example, I mean, the options are limited. You know, there's, you know, in, in the Netherlands, there's, you know, there's working in kitchens or mowing lawns or, you know, but none of it has to do with anything, the kind of job that anybody would really want. And uh, the school where they wanted to send him to, um, they were like, yeah, our, our top, our top students are the ones that put mail into boxes. Those are our top students. And that was as a parent, when you hear something like that, you're like, you know, you know, you have parents who are like, I want my child to go to Harvard. I want you to, and then you have someone saying, yeah, he's going to fill boxes for the rest of his life. I'm like, no, there's, 
you should see the music he makes. You should see the art that he makes. You should see the photos he makes. He has his Instagram that he makes these amazing photos. There's so much going on in his head, but you're measuring what's going on in that head by what comes out of his mouth. And that's where the mistake is made, right? Because yeah, society needs to change in that regard. Right. The, the, it just so, needs to have a different perception and identify them um, as your son, as a human being, and not just because of a challenge. Right. And so I, I feel that everybody would be happier. Um, everybody will benefit, especially Cass, if he gets an education and he can live mostly independent and have a job that he really loves. I agree with that. And being a DJ, that's a great job, dude. Yeah. You meet girls that way. <laughs> yeah. You like that, wouldn't you? Yeah. What was your motivation for uh, To the Mountain? Is that kind of an essence of uh, your journey with your son? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it's a good question. I, I often ask that myself, like, why? But I, you know, I haven't written. My last book came out 10 years ago, and a lot of my last 10 years has been sort of taking, you know, helping this one and his two brothers, of course, but sort of navigating everything so that he can have the life a good life. And, and that takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of creative energy. And so it's been hard to write in the last 10 years. And um, I, I feel as a writer that you should write about what's closest to you. And then also what affects you emotionally. Can you stop doing that? Sorry, but I'm just... I know you are. This is just making faces. <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. He's sitting there while I'm talking, just making faces of himself, looking at himself. <laughs> yeah, life uh, is good. Life is good, yeah. right? I'm trying, to be yeah. all, I'm trying to be all serious, and he's sticking out his tongue. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, I, I've always felt, for me as a writer, that to have the best writing that I can turn out is to write something that affects me emotionally. And when I think about the stuff that I've gone through the last 10 years, I mean, it's not, obviously it's not comparable to what Kess has gone through, but, but as a parent, the sort of existential crisis of what, what's going to happen to my son, you know, what is going to, what is going to happen? What am I going to do? Is it, is this going to work out or not? And um, that, that's been very, very heavy on me. And I, I had to, I had to sort of get that out. And, and of course I like can being in the school here, that, that existential crisis is the weight has gone off like half, you know, like it's, it's really a lot of it's just, it's, it's lifting slowly. And, and then I was able to, you know, you're able to write, I'm right about, and then one of the things too, that really, I find very hard when I read a lot, a lot of sort of father son autism memoirs and stuff is I don't recognize myself in it. And I think, I think there are these sort of, these sort of, I feel that there are these elements to parents with a disabled child that can be told whether he's, as you would say, in a wheelchair or, or, whether he's, you know, any, any sort of disability, it's this Abraham and Isaac 
thing that, and that's what I tried to really focus on, that it's this faith that you have in your children and your faith that you have that something something good will come out of it or something something will come out of it if you just keep going up that mountain. And, and, and I, you know, when I started writing the book, I, I spent a lot of time when I, when I start writing something, I, I often go back to like the Greeks and the, and the Bible where a lot of the sort of the, the original stories come from. And then I just, I, yeah, I fell into Isaac and Isaac and Abraham and, uh, and just that, that, that intense feeling that Abraham must've felt, you know? And that that existential dread, and that why 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 you know and I mean I guess Abraham didn't know about existentialism but you get my point is that he and so I, I wanted to sort of put that into to a novel about uh, that I would recognize as a parent with an autistic son and um, and then yeah and then of course when I finished it after much a lot of many years of work. I like to read it. Well, he, he didn't read it. He listened to it. And uh, that was also sort of scary because, you know, what if he didn't like it? Did you like it? Yes. Is it a good book? Yes. You proud of your dad? Yes. Is your dad proud of you? Yes. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> you say a little bit more than yes? Good. <laughs> That's okay. His smile says it all. Yeah. He's a charmer. I mean, he really is. It's a, he's not he's not saying much. He doesn't really say much more than this anyway. So th I think this is actually about as verbal as he gets. But he is a charmer. He laughs and smiles. And I think we've had a great conversation so far. Right? I, I really do. And I'm a professional, so I can say that. See? Yeah. I'm like an expert. You guys are my 81st episode. How long did it take you to write the book, Eric? Um, took me about two years or so. But it was about twice as long, and uh, it had a lot of backstory about the the father and his wife. I had a lot of story about the relationship and what parents go through, um, you know. Because I mean, I guess the hardest thing about all this is that there's two sides, you know. There's the parents, and then there's the children, you know. And obviously, children who have autism <laughs> are the ones that suffer the most, you know. And parents aren't, but but when you're a parent, you know, your your whole responsibility is to make sure that your child has, that you've done the best that you possibly can with your child. And when you're constantly running against walls where people are saying, you know, that they're never going to do this, this is never going to happen, or, you know, you're in denial about, you know, your son's abilities, then you think to yourself, yeah, you know, what, what you just... You, you you keep you just give up or you just keep fighting blindly and um um so i guess so i, I had a lot of that backstory and then, and then it just it wasn't really working and i didn't know why and then i hired an editor and my editor was the same editor who did the revenant the, the leonard dicaprio movie but the, oh, the cool. book yeah Very and cool. he he just he was like look he was like the book is about a father his son and nature. And it's that, that sort of triangle. And oh, so yeah. keep it on that triangle. And then I lost half the book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, I, I can. My father was a writer and a journalist, and um, I've written myself, but I've not written a novel. But my father was a, a writer. He graduated from Penn State University in journalism, and oh. his whole life he was a journalist. Yeah, but but you don't you don't want to write. I don't want to write a novel. <laughs> <laughs> I have written some other things, and I have been published, but I I don't, I don't. Every time I think about a novel, I went well. I think I'd rather write a movie. And yeah. well, uh, it would be easier it to write and quicker to write and get more of well, my thoughts but I out. I think it was interesting when we were talking earlier and you were talking about being pinned between the car and, and right? And and uh, and how, and the, the, the sort of the, the pledge you made to your daughter. Um, and then you got teary-eyed, right? So I, I had a professor in City College in New York who said, you know, you should always write about what hurts you the most or what affects you the most, the emotional thing and go from there. And so I think a lot of people like to sort of write a good story, but I think a good story comes from when you really dig into that, those places that affect you emotionally. Right. So if you were to write about, if you were to write about that particular, that pledge and where it stems from, I think you would just naturally have a good story because it made you already teary-eyed. Just even mentioning it made you teary-eyed, you know? So so going back to my novel, this is sort of why I wrote this because I, at the end, you know, when the father when there's the, the father says something at the end, I still, when I read it, I get teary-eyed. And it's not my story, but it's an emotion that I have felt the whole time. And that so for me to even read it out loud... I get, and so I think that's why it's important to write from your. I mean, this sounds horribly cliche, but you you write from your heart, but what affects your heart, you know? So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I like I like that. You may have inspired me to kind of put pen to paper or keyboard at least to screen. A short story. You got a short story there. At, at least, at minimum, I might be able to string it out maybe a little longer. But th- I mean, this is interesting because it knows how to read and write. What have you been writing lately? Um, what? What have you been writing a lot lately? Oh, yeah, I've been writing... Uh, you write music? Yeah. And you write what else? Um, do you compose the notes or do you write the lyrics? I sort of write the lyrics. How do you do it? Tell them how you do it. Um, I, I sort of... I, I pull up a Google Doc. And you ask, who do you ask for help all the time? Siri. Siri's my friend. Yeah. So he, just to sort of explain, this is something that, like, once again, people couldn't say he could write and he couldn't read. And now, in his free time, he goes in his room, he puts his either Alexa or Siri there, and he says, Siri, how do you say this word? And then, or how do you spell this word? And then Siri will spell it, or Alexa will spell it. And then he writes it down. And it's like Siri, how do you say? And he just does this, and he does it for hours because he has confidence now that he can write, you know. And and he has his assistant that can do it too. So uh, yeah, it, it also touches my heart to see him writing these long stories, and then raps. You write raps too. Yeah. Do you rap them out? Yeah. Very cool. When are you going to go up on stage in public? Um. I guess um, it's your play, right? Yeah, with my play. Tell me what the name of the play is called. 
Rise of the Turtle Torch. Rise of the Turtle Torch. <laughs> it's a really hard long name. What's your character's name? Leto, Leto Cool. Cool, yeah. So at his school, they put on a play every year, and then they all write it. And um, I'm sorry, I'm well, sure <laughs> for efficiency. He, 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 they put on this play, and because this is something most people don't understand about autism is that when autism, people who have autism, they think associatively. They don't think sequentially. So um, like Temple Grandin, they did a really good job with that movie in Temple Grandin, that when she sees an image, she thinks of every image linked to that. And so, so things, when you say to him, like he'll sit there and say things all the time that nobody understands, but people close to him understand because his reaction is an associative reaction and not a reaction necessarily to that particular comment. So this whole play that they put on, they write it and the teachers sit there and they help them write it. It's all associative, the whole play. It's, it's fascinating to watch because um, they all just sort of, you know, go off of each other and they come up with all these associated thoughts and the play goes here and it goes here and it goes here and it goes here and it doesn't matter. It just, it's, it's great, you know? And so this is a medieval play, right? Yeah. And raps in the play and he's little cool, but it's a medieval play. It's about turtle torch and it's also kind of Pokemon-ish too, a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of Pokemon-ish and there's just all these different things. Last year they had characters from Minecraft come in and Pac-Man and like just all these different things and, you know, and it's, it's, it's really fun to watch. And so he's participating in it and he will be, on stage in a and for and Broadway, they asked a they asked a one of Broadway. They, your school did one of Broadway. Yeah, about Broadway. Yeah, were you in that one? No. Did you help write the one you're going to be in? Yeah. How many scenes did you write? Scenes. Like how many parts? You how many parts in? did you write? How many scenes? Mm, I guess I'm gonna be in. Five, I guess. Very good. Sounds like you got an amazing school and support system around you, and I think that's outstanding. Huh? <laughs> is this school specific to? This is a public school. Is it? it is it specific to somebody with autism? No, it's a. It's a. It's a private school. Yeah. Private school. Yeah. <laughs> this is also something that I like to show too. Is that? That people always think that autistic kids don't like to be hugged or touched, but you know, it's also they're so sensitive and they don't, they have all sorts of like when you touch someone's autism, they feel a lot more than everybody else. But you can also squeeze them and give them headlocks. And <laughs> <laughs> I would have to describe that as you did it to get the relation to the audience. <laughs> As they give each other noogies across the <laughs> upper head uh, and yeah. loving hugs to move but things I forward. mean, it's funny too because we're, we're talking about this. People always think like autistic kids, they, they really, I mean, the thing is like when you, when you touch them, when you hold them, they like, they like the sense, the sense of being held, but also they sense everything, the smells, the sounds, the everything. It's, it becomes too much at some point, but it's not like that because it has a really good sense of humor. You see, he's been smiling this whole time and making faces into the camera and, 
you know, and just really enjoying how he looks on video. But he's also really ticklish <laughs> too. See, so you can also just really tickle. and like this is not, you know, this is not your typical. But this is what autistic kids are, and the, the sort of the myth of what the, what they are is it's it's just wrong a lot of times. You know, it's you have to also sort of get there. Yeah, in society today, I think that um, you know the perception of individuals. And certain challenges within their lives needs to evolve into something yeah. a little more normal, humane, and compassionate, and understanding, and and realize that uh, we are people, and we all have our unique journeys, but we all are part of that journey as a whole. In reality, yeah. And I, I, like I said, once again, it's nice to have him here and to have people like you who are supportive of having him because I do think that, you know, as time goes on, he will be able to take more responsibility for this and, and to say, like, look, this is what autism is and this is why I'm here. And, you know, and he can be the one. I don't know. I'm not going to be the one talking about autism. He'll be the one talking about autism, you know. Well, when you're ready for that, I want to have you back on the show. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's the one more thing before you go. You have something important to say and and something important to share, and I would love to be the person to share that. Yeah. Um, please stay safe. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, this is one more thing before you go. So before we go, are there any words of wisdom you can share with others who are taking the same journey? Well, I, I guess, I mean... You want to start? You want me to start? This could yeah. be a joint statement. I guess one of the things is that I was raised a Quaker, and uh, I guess you know Quakers they look at you know the reason why the Quakers are pacifists and the reason why they you know they were they were part of the underground slave trade and and not trade underground slave and the railroad <laughs> and then, that was wrong it came out to the and the, one of the reasons they you know they they bought land from the Native Americans stuff like that is because they. <clears throat> they believe that everybody had God within them, right? Everybody has God and that you just have to look carefully and you see the beauty. You see the person, the humanity within somebody. And I feel like a lot of that has, has, has helped. I mean, as a father still, you know, I mean, you're a father, you know, this, you look at your kids and you see what nobody else sees with your kids. You know, you see, the, the wonder and the, the beauty and, you know, your teachers sit there and say like, well, you know, your kid talks back in class and you say, well, no, you know, like my kid's a beautiful child. But then also then there's that other step of like, I have fought for all these years because I knew there was, there was a lot inside of him. And the fact that I was, I feel in a lot of parents I know go through this, they are very sort of, they walk away from this traumatized because so many people push back and say like, no, you're wrong. You know, you don't, but I feel like we don't see enough inside of other people or experience enough, really, really look at somebody and say like, okay, they, they talk like this or they look like this or they act like this. You know, this person's screaming at me and cursing at me, but there's goodness there. There's something there. There's a person there. And, and I'm trying not to sound trite, but it's, I know you, I guess I'm also talking because I was listening to your podcast earlier, like with the angels and stuff like that. Like you, you see more, there's more going on, not just outside of us, but within other people too. And we miss it because we don't look closely enough. And I think that has really helped me 
as a parent survive through all the negativity and all the pushback that I've gotten um, because I knew there was something special inside of him and in his head. And now, you know, it's, it's, I, yeah, I'm sort of being proven right in a way, you know, and, and, uh, and I know one of the things he does when he is around other kids, especially nonverbal, like autistic kids that are nonverbal, I see it with him. He's very tender and very caring. And, you know, you have some kid that's rocking back and forth that can't talk and then might have a tantrum. And this is always very like calming and soothing. Like, can I get you something? Are you okay? So he's doing it himself too. He's seeing that there's a person there, that there's something going on that because someone's, you know, having a tantrum and lying on the floor and, you know, whatever, that there's a reason for that. It's not because they're bad parents or because the kid's a jerk. It's because there's a lot going on there and we miss that. We need to sort of look at everybody more like what what's going on inside there and let's just really try and figure out where's that where's that person if that makes sense at all absolutely those are outstanding words of wisdom um so is there anything you would like to add to that uh, with anybody with autism that has it that you might give some advice to to maybe the family or um somebody that might be listening uh, to, to this yeah what would you like to share <laughs> what would you say to somebody else who has autism? Um, I would say, uh, I mean, I'll be like, hello, my name's, what's yours? And then they'll be like, like, they'll tell their brother their name. And then? But some, some kids are all like nervous. So maybe let them understand that some kids could be nervous and to take their time, be patient. Yeah. That's also that time. like hold, with your friends and stuff like that too, like holding them and sort of hugging them and yeah, and really caring about them. Why do you do that? Well, I don't know. I do. Well, I think those are words, excellent words of wisdom as well. Thank you both for sharing this journey with us. I really appreciate. It. I think that uh, we've opened some people's eyes, and I hope we've motivated and inspired some families out there and other individuals to have a better understanding of what autism is and how it affects families in a both negative and a positive way in that you can always have the opportunity to overcome and to move forward in a very positive way. Yeah. Enjoy it. I really enjoy your podcast too. It's nice. Thanks for having us too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. That's BeforeYouGoPodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.